Welcome to PTBC Podcast, where we will be speaking about innovation, technology, growing your business, and maximizing your entrepreneurial potential. Let's get down to business. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our newest episode of the PTBC Podcast. This is Justin, and I'm joined here by Saroosh. Today, we have a very special guest all the way from West Coast, Tanya Yardley. She's a Queen's PT graduate and currently working as the Vice President of Outpatient Services for CBI Health Group in British Columbia. In her role as VP of Outpatient Services, she oversees the operations of over 40 clinics, providing mentorship and coaching to clinicians and managers. She was previously a co-owner of Rehabilitation in Motion, ProMotion Consulting Limited, and Ergonomics in Motion. In addition to this, she has chaired the Business Affairs Committee and served on the board of the Physiotherapy Association of British Columbia. Tanya has experience teaching internationally on topics like clinical best practices and effective communication strategies for complex clinical cases, as well as consulting with insurers on best practice service delivery models. Here's a quick fun fact. Tanya recently co-authored a book on business ethics and best practices. All right, it's time to get down to business. How are you doing today, Tanya? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on today. I'm really excited to chat more on this topic. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here today. So um, could you t- tell us a little bit more about your journey into physiotherapy and how you ended up as a VP of outpatient services at CBI? Oh, wow. It's a long story, so I'll try to keep it brief. I've been a <laughs> for about 25 years uh, and I graduated from physio school and actually went out into private practice almost immediately on my own. Um, I showed up in a small town uh, to a hospital job and within about three months realized that the hospital setting just wasn't going to be for me. So I I took the leap of faith and started a business with a a really great friend of mine um, who was a kinesiologist actually. And we opened our own little clinic and uh, started seeing patients there. Uh, I guess that would have been, oh, 1993. Um, And the clinic was just tiny. It was like one room and there was two beds and you had to step over the mats to get, you know, past the, uh, to the, to the front desk and then over to the physio area. So it was quite a tiny little space and it grew so quickly. So within, you know, probably three or four months, we were just so jam-packed with such a huge wait list, so we decided to expand. So we we actually went in, um, partnered with a local employer, a big mill, and uh, they helped to support us to put a gym space in and so that we could treat their injured uh, workers and, and also help them with just health and fitness. So it grew into a, a big clinic, so it went from about 500 square feet to about 5,000 square feet in the span of a few months. And then... Um, the same thing happened. We kept getting asked to consult in other locations. So fairly soon I was traveling an hour away to do some consulting in the next town away from us. And um, about six months later, we started another clinic there. Then we added a third partner. And so then over the next five years, we actually grew to five clinics. So it was a very rapid uh, expansion process, much more quickly than I would have ever imagined but of course then I was young and full of energy and had no kids and you know I wanted to conquer the world so it grew really quickly and we ran that practice all five clinics together uh, the three of us for just about 20 years and uh, after a period of uh, that duration we, we we had all by then had kids and moved on to different phases of our life and and we had um, 
really learned a lot about business in that period just by self-teaching mainly. And uh, we, over time, had developed a relationship with several of the other companies, um, not necessarily in the community where we're in, but up and down the island. And I was doing quite a lot of teaching for the Physio Association, meeting lots of different clinicians. And I was just curious about a different experience. So when CBI Health Group came along, uh, I was really curious to learn from them about how they scaled from you know, uh, their small operations into a huge kind of national company. And I wanted to learn more about what they did and how they did that. And so I actually was asked to do some consulting work for CBI, some teaching uh, that was aligned up with some of the work I was doing for the Physio Association. And uh, over the course of time, I actually fell in love with the staff that I was working with, the managers that I was teaching and, and their business model. And so after working for them for about three years as a consultant part-time, I, I made the decision that I wanted to sell my business uh, to CBI and join their team. So I've been with them now for 10 years uh, and it's been a really amazing experience for me. I've learned so, so much. And I realize now looking back 25 years later that there was a million things that I didn't know I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a really wonderful experience uh, to teach other people what I've learned and also to help them grow their own business. So it's, it's, it was one of the best decisions that I ever made. Mm-hmm. So Tanya, it seems that, you know, over uh, the time that you've had all this experience building these clinics and joining CBI, you've had a lot of experience working with individuals and uh you know whether they were your employees or your employers or kind of business partners etc um there is a topic that i wanted to talk to you about that i think you can speak on well uh it's a topic that's been gaining traction in physiotherapy um i want to talk a little bit about engagement and i want uh, i want to know what your take on engagement is and why you think it's so important um, in our business and especially in physiotherapy. Wow, that's a really uh, important topic I think to talk about because I think we throw the word engagement around a lot in terms of uh, thinking that we understand it. And it's really now, just now in my career that I'm really, really understanding how crucial it is that we get relationships right. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's much easier when you're a clinician, you just have to focus on the relationship that you have with your patient and really understanding what their needs and goals are versus now in the role that I'm in where I actually have 600 and some staff that um, I'm responsible for and trying to scale the importance of relationship building and really understanding and connecting with people across a bigger group is much more challenging. But I'm, I'm really starting to notice now that it's, it's often the little things that we do that affect our relationships with our patients. They affect our relationships with our employer. For me, they uh, affect my relationship with the team. And it's interesting because the exact same principles that apply with our patients are the same when we're dealing with our family, when we're dealing with our employer. Engagement is engagement is engagement. And I think if you get really good at mastering the principles of it, you can apply it in every single area of your life and see a difference. So yeah, it's there's a, quite a lot of research on, on actually on engagement. And what they found on um, the Gallup Institute when they, they looked at over 200,000 people in over 36 companies across the globe, And they actually found that uh, highly engaged people really, really uh, have a significant difference in their happiness level and and that it correlates with workplace safety, 
it correlates with reduced turnover, it correlates with customer loyalty, it correlates with um, greater uh, business health. It, it's really quite amazing. And people that have good engagement have much stronger relationships with their boss, they're better equipped to handle challenges and stress. So it actually makes you resilient to stress and less likely to have mental health problems. Uh, they feel more valued, they have more satisfaction in their job. It's, it's really quite incredible. And you briefly mentioned how important these principles of engagement are. And could you maybe tell us your top three principles of engagement? Well, I apologize because there's more than three. So I'm going to tell you my top six, if that's okay. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's a complete pain in the butt. Yeah. When I'm talking about engagement, I always talk about the six E's of engagement. Mm-hmm. And so the, the main and the very first one really is uh, the ex, the E of expectations. So really making sure that whoever it is that you're trying to engage with is really clear about what uh, your expectations are of them and their expectations of you. In the absence of that, we make all kinds of assumptions. And, and when we start making those assumptions, relationships really start falling apart. So I always say uh, around expectations, were they clear, were they set, were they shared, and were they met? So those are the four kind of key points where you have to touch bases with the person that you're working with, whoever it is and wherever it is, to make sure that, um, that both of you had the same idea of what was expected at the, at the outset. The second uh, key thing about engagement is someone's emotional experience. So it's really um, establishing why the, you know, the thing that you're doing together or the relationship that you're having with each other is important and why it's meaningful to you. So it's really important to ask if somebody, for for example, if it's a patient coming to me saying, you know, I need some help with being able to golf again, or I need some help with being able to lift or, you know, push or pull or any of those things. We talk about why is that important to you? What is meaningful about that? And I think that if you can attach an emotional experience to a goal, it's much more powerful for the person and they're much more likely to stay engaged and actually follow it through. So when we rush people or don't take a good history or we don't take the time to get to know them, we really miss out on the opportunity to build that emotional experience for them. Mm-hmm. The third piece, uh, the third E is expectancy. And and really the question that goes along with that is how confident are you that you can do this? So if it's something that they want, but they have no confidence that they can actually do it, then it's really going to hamper their motivation and and also the the chance and likelihood that they're going to successfully achieve it. So getting clear on that right at the beginning. And expectancy can also take another thing. And that is that as a clinician or as a manager, being able to say to someone, you know, I actually believe you can do this. I have faith in you. I have trust in you. I know you have the skills. So if when someone is lacking that or not clear, sometimes it's really helpful to get them that kind of reinforcement and, and your expectancy that they're going to be able to, to make it happen. The fourth piece is equip. You want to make sure that you equip someone with the tools and the training and the education that they need to actually be able to do it. So a lot of times we make assumptions about what people know or what tools they have. So it's really important to say, do you feel like you have everything you need to be successful in this task that you're undertaking? The fifth thing is execution. 
So really getting clear on what needs to be done and how they're going to track progress and, and also making sure too that at the end of the day, um, you're making progress towards something that's a shared goal. And we'll talk a lot more about that, you know, later in the podcast, but really um, getting clear on the steps that you need to take. And then the last piece is really encouragement. I am a big believer that positivity is a crucial piece of this. So it's really asking the person that you're dealing with or your family member, whoever, how would you like to be supported through this process? How would you like to be acknowledged when you've achieved this goal? Or, you know, what kind of um, steps do you need along the way to help you? So the six C's again are expectations, emotional experience, expectancy, equip, execute, and encourage. Well, that was definitely a very well thought out answer. Just on the topic, today I was actually at um, a talk and it was about kind of active listening. So it was kind of on the similar lines as what you were mentioning and how to really build relationships and build rapport with patients. And I thought that was so important, especially when building therapeutic alliance. And just on the topic of that, what are some qualities that you've seen individuals that have you, that you hired who have displayed good therapeutic alliance with their, patient, with their clients? Well, there's two things um, that I see. One is exactly on the topic that you just discussed, actually, around listening. Um, being a good listener is, is actually such a crucial, crucial piece of it. And so, ironically, you're going to kill me, but I'm about to go into another <laughs> like um, thing where there's a few different points. But no, I always talk about something called level four listening. So mm-hmm. level four listening is when you really listen with your whole body. So if you think about it from zero to four, level zero is really not listening. And, and not listening is when you're pretending to listen to someone or when you're listening to kind of fix their problem or respond or immediately generate a solution. Or, and this is the one that I'm most guilty of because I love bonding with people and seeing what we have in common is listening autobiographically, which just means that you're listening to them um, for listening for something that you have in common. And this is definitely something I, a trap that I fall into. So, you know, I might be dealing with someone and they say, Oh, I'm from the North. And I'll be like, Oh my gosh, I'm from the Yukon. (laughs) Or I love mountain biking. Oh, well, what do you know? I love that too. We always listen to people looking for common ground or looking for something that's likable about them or something that we have in common. And sometimes we're so busy going down that track that we actually lose track of what they're really saying. Um, So I consider all of those kinds of listening actually not listening at all. (laughs) So level one listening is when it's somebody that you know already and you're kind of just downloading and listening to them, not really listening for anything new, but just already making assumptions that you know who they are. So you're just reconfirming whatever old opinions you have on that person or old judgment. So you're only operating from a field of knowledge from the past and not really listening um, closely for with curiosity about what's new or what's different or what's happening for that person or how they're growing. Then level two listening is a factual listening. So you're, you're basically a little more open-minded. You're kind of listening for data. So when you're taking a patient history, like you might be looking, listening for um, clues about what might be going on, or you're, you're actually listening a little bit to see what kind of contributing factors might be there. So that's at least better than the non-listening where you're, you know, generating a response because you think you already know what's going on. You at least have a bit more of an open mind. Level three listening, which I think is really um, when you start to see the rubber hit the road from an engagement standpoint is called empathic listening. So that's when instead of listening with a more open mind where you're looking for facts, you start listening with an open heart, which means that you start to imagine 
that person's experience through their eyes. So you start to actually develop a more emotional connection with them because you're actually um, really putting yourself in their shoes. So it's really, you know, I wonder what that might feel like or asking more kind of clarifying questions and getting to understand a little more of their emotional experience and how it's impacting them. And then level four is actually the coolest kind of listening. It's when you're listening with your whole body in the sense that you're not just listening for their words, you're seeing their body language. You're seeing when they talk about a certain thing, how their breathing gets shallow or how they get um, tense in a certain way or how their ears turn red. Or So you're actually listening with your whole body and noticing what's going on with their whole body. And you're really listening for opportunities to say, what's that about for you? Or I noticed this thing, let's talk a little bit about that. And, and when you get to that level for kind of more generative listening, then you start to actually talk um, to your client or to your coworker or to whoever that is from a perspective of how can we create a solution together and noticing how when you're generating solutions, how those things impact them and what gets them excited and how they light up from the inside when they talk about a certain thing and exploring down that path. So I always say that my mission as a leader is to help people light up from the inside. I always love having those conversations where you actually get into the the quality of listening where you see someone spark on something and you see their eyes light up or you see their body language change and all of a sudden you realize, hey, I'm onto something. So when I'm actually working with the people who report directly on my team and I'm trying to um, get to a, a point where they feel really engaged and stimulated and like they're growing, that's the kind of listening that generates new ideas. And, and you know, I notice you get really excited when you talk about, um, I don't know, it might be... Um, doing marketing or getting engaged with uh, funders or teaching or something like that. And when I see someone light up about teaching, for example, then I start to say, okay, so what sort of things are you interested in teaching? Cause I see that that really excites and stimulates and motivates you. And how do we create more of that in your life or in your job or in your position? So um, listening is like, I think I would say the most crucial skill. And then the other um, thing that I, I say is, is, some degree of charisma you know how certain clinicians like you're just in their general area and you just feel excited being around them they just naturally kind of um, stimulate you or influence you and it's interesting because some people believe that charisma is just something that we're born with and actually the more I read about social psychology and the more I delve into these things the more that I realize that charisma is something completely learnable and there's basically four components of it one is your presence, so how engaged and curious you are, and you can you can cultivate that you're in yourself by putting down your cell phone and really focusing on people, looking them in the eye when you're talking to them, mirroring their tone, and just getting engaged and um, connecting with them and being curious about them. So presence is a is a fairly easy one to establish. The second thing is confidence, so that's really your optimism and how your body language reflects um, that you feel confident and 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 ready or and and that you. If you don't know the answer, you'll be able to help them find someone who does. The third piece of charisma is competence, so being really knowledgeable and helpful. And then the last piece of uh, charisma is radiance, which is really about warmth and enthusiasm. And some people think that if you're an introvert, you can't develop that. But again, it's just about how you present yourself, the words you choose, um, and, and how you kind of reflect back to people. So, yeah, I think both of both the listening and the ability to, to show those qualities of charisma can be really helpful in, in building a strong practice. You know, it's amazing how you're able to break down something that seems so simple into so many 
uh, different component. And, you know, there is a bit of a complexity around whole listening and engagement piece. What are some tips that you would provide individuals today who are clinic owners to try to help their staff, help their physiotherapists improve this uh, listening piece and improve and get that, get to the level four type of listening and to help uh, input some of the factors of charisma that you mentioned? I think part of it is giving feedback and being willing to role play or even like as a clinician and owner, um, taking the time to talk about difficult cases together. So actually making space for having those conversations around this person's really stuck. How can I help them? And maybe role playing a conversation or sitting in, like I quite often will sit in on people's assessments and kind of help support them or give my two cents about what I think might be useful or model for them, kind of how that communication might be, might go more smoothly. So it's one of those things that's a real life kind of thing. You actually have to practice it and model it and demonstrate it and get feedback and give feedback on it. So um, I think spending time with people is really important. And one of the most powerful things that I think that I've learned as a clinician even is that front end loading is really important, meaning that uh, that very first uh, one or two interactions that you have with someone will set the tone for the whole rest of the treatment process. And it's the same when you're hiring someone, the time you spend with someone at the very beginning of their um, career with you or the very beginning of their job, like that onboarding period, taking the time right at the front end to get really clear on expectations and tools and, you know, and here's where I see your strength and how can we create some common goals that if you skip that, it's very, very, very hard to um, reignite engagement once it's been lost. So I think front end loading is, is a critical piece of that, just taking the time up front to do a good job. And just to build on that question, how do you uh, recommend us as students and new graduates who are coming out, how, what are some things we can do to help improve this? You know what? I think if it's not happening, actually speaking up about how important it is to you is, is a crucial thing. Actually asking your employer to spend that front end time with you or, um, or also recognizing, this is going to sound awful, but one of the pet peeves that I have with some of the students that are coming out is that they see themselves as a receptacle that you just pour knowledge and, you know, and tools and training and everything into, and they don't see it as their job. Whereas the experience that I've had with the people that have had the most meaningful connection with, and some of the students that I had, you know, 15, 20 years ago that I still am connected to today, it's really because they saw that as a partnership, not as a, I'm receptacle and what are you going to do for me, but how, you know, I want to learn from you, but I also, I want to contribute to that process. So making the time, for example, take like saying to your boss, would you, you know, do you have time to go for lunch one day or maybe grab dinner one day or here after work or whatever the case is like actually really getting to know them. So, you know, actually taking the time to ask questions and be curious. I think being curious is the most important quality that you can have as I think a lot of people make assumptions or they think they know how it's supposed to go and maybe in a situation where your employer is really busy or, you know, during the workday, they seem scattered or they're distracted. So if that's the case, try to carve out some time where it can just be the two of you just to take some time to get to know each other and, uh, and learn more about their history and understand what their style is and that kind of thing, because then it will help you relate better. And, and it also doesn't create the perception that you're being entitled or that you, you know, that you're not willing to, to learn or, or understand um, 
I, I just find that that whole idea of being curious and, and, you know, help me understand how you learned what you learned or how you got to be where you are and, and, and understanding what their perspective is really helps to, to broaden that and making that a two way street. So if your employer or your manager or even your coworker isn't modeling that, you can model that for them and they would be more inclined to reciprocate. Yeah, I think that some of the strategies that you did mention that you kind of teach with your team members is something that I feel like we should get more exposure in school. I know that um, on some of my clinical placements that just things like active listening is something that I've definitely needed to work on. Having said that, what are some strategies that you found useful to target client engagement from a clinician standpoint? Um, part of it is the way I actually structure my sessions. I do my assessment over two sessions typically when I, and I know that's really unusual, but mm-hmm. what I do, but otherwise an assessment feels rushed for me. So there, there are a couple of key things. One is on that very first visit. I, I take some time to get to know what's important to them and what their goals are and why, you know, why they're here. Um, sometimes if they're, if it's an injured worker or a car accident, they're there because the insurance company has forced them to be there. So I always feel like I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage in that situation. And it takes a little bit longer sometimes to kind of get to know what they're, what's going to engage them and, and get a better sense of that. But um, typically I take the time to really, you know, I get the anatomy books out and I show them what their muscles look like in the area or, you know, try to give them some idea about their own body. So what that does is transmit to them that the competence piece that I know what I'm doing, that I'm, uh, you know, I want to share information with them that I'm really engaged in teaching them about themselves and that this is a partnership. And then I do, you know, my regular assessment um, and I do a bit of treatment at the end if they, if I've flared them with their symptoms, but one of the crucial things that I do after that in that first session is to say, I'm going to take away all of this information. I want to do a really thorough job of writing a good treatment plan for you. And so what I do is I take away all my findings. I write up a treatment plan for them that they um, can review with me on the next day when I focus more on the treatment. And so then when they come in, I can say, okay, based on the assessment, here's what I think is going on. Here's the treatment approach that I think would serve you best does this look okay to you? And would you like me to fax it to your doctor? Would you feel more comfortable if, if they were involved? Especially with um, some of the older folks, they see the doctor as the authority. And so um, one of the things I came up against a lot when I was a young clinician, because I looked about 13 till I was about 30, um, was that people would look at me like, who are you, Doogie Hauser? What do you know? And so I, in, that, in those situations, um, I would often engage their family doctor, at least link their family doctor in, so they they knew that it was a you know a, a team effort. Uh, now now that I look old, <laughs> it's not so hard. Uh, uh, and and you know, I've been around long enough that people go, oh yeah, she's obviously done this before. So it's really again that charisma. So the first session is really all about presence for me and confidence, really sharing to them, you know, with them that. Um, I've seen this problem before. I'm confident that I can help you, but I'm also going to take into consideration that you love to golf, that you have grandkids, that, you know, whatever, so that whatever treatment plan I put in place doesn't just link to the goals of the insurance company, but also links to the goals of the individual. Then I go through it with them the next day, make sure they're fine with it. Then we both actually sign off on the treatment plan because there's a whole lot of research that shows that if you have a written plan, and that if the person actually like signs their name to it, they're more likely to carry it through to completion. And also that I can reflect back that I truly heard them the day before. And so they know it's not just a one shot deal that, you know, I'm there and I'm committed. 
And then, you know, I try to convey that with some warmth and some enthusiasm. And if there's something that they mention that um, was relevant, like I haven't been sleeping very well or I've been struggling with some other element, I will often on that second day bring something into the treatment plan that they didn't expect. So I'll say, you know, I noticed yesterday that you said that you were having sleeping problems. I brought you a great article on sleeping better, or here's a link to a, you know, a, um, a, a podcast or something that might be helpful about nutrition. Or, you know, you mentioned that you'd gain some weight and, you know, here's some great resources if you want to explore on your own that. So it's, it's not necessarily in my treatment plan, but I noticed something that I can help them with. And it's quite incredible when you do that for someone, how grateful they are and how much more excited they are to work with you. Yeah, it seems like you've really narrowed it down to a science here. You've done a great job engaging your clients and, you know, really targeting the buy-in piece. Now, my, my question is, how do you make your patient or client the clinic's ambassador and promoter? Ah, so here's the coolest part about that. There's a there's a bunch of different, this is a whole other presentation that we can talk about another time. There's a bunch of different principles about um, influence that are actually really interesting. One of the um, one of the ways that I do that, it, once I kind of understand what their style is and, and I've given them the best potential experience that I can, is that I really check back in with them over the course of a treatment. So usually about five, 10 minutes before I'm done their treatment, I'll say, okay, so on a scale of zero to 10, regarding the goals that you came in with today, where are we at? And they'll give me a score before they leave. So they'll say, you know, either 10 out of 10, I had a great treatment session, I'm really happy. And I'm really upfront about, I want to give you an, an incredible customer experience. I want you to leave here saying this was the best, you know, experience that I can have. So if you're not having a good experience, we need to find a way for me to know that without you feeling like I'm putting you on the spot or that you have to describe what it is or that you, you feel any pressure. So I said, I, my system is just a quick number system. You mm -hmm. just give me a, a score on a zero to 10 scale on, on how I'm doing. And you don't have to tell me if you don't want to where I'm falling short, but it's incredibly helpful if you do. And that still gives me another five or 10 minutes to kind of, um, do something to resolve whatever that residual issue is. It might be that I'm still having pain. Okay, well, the next time you come in, let's try this alternate approach. Or you said you were going to give me a new exercise next time and you didn't give it to me. I'll be like, oh, thank you for tweaking my memory. Let's make sure we give that to you. So I always try to make each session a bit unique. And I always like to do a correction in real time in front of them so that they can see it's important to me. And the other thing that actually I do, which but both helps with efficiency of my practice and also helps with engagement is I tend to link clients together that have similar kinds of injuries. So when I was practicing more fully, I would put all my low back people in, you know, in a certain part of the day, or I put my shoulders and necks together at a certain time of the day so that as they were going around in the gym and doing their exercises, they would link up with someone else who was having a similar experience to them and they would freaking bond, like bond, like nobody's mm -hmm. business. So the two knee replacement guys would be on the bike side by side. And one day one guy wouldn't be there and the other guy would be worried about him. So, you know, they'd be checking in or reassuring each other. Oh, I'm three or four weeks ahead of you. It's going to get better or whatever. So it's not just the relationship that I had, with my patients, but the relationship that they had with each other that really um, created a, a heightened emotional experience for them. 
And then the other thing that I did was absolutely always acknowledge whatever little milestones. So I used to have a cupboard in the clinic where I had all kinds of just goofy stuff. So I'd had a, a bridal veil and I had a, you know, a garter and I had a little bouquet of flowers and I had a graduation hat and I had, you know, just like little prop things. That's awesome. And so, yeah. So if I had two knee replacements, you know, uh, I had this little lady and this little man that both had one had a knee and one had a hip and I'd be like, Oh my gosh, you both have had a similar surgery. And so I, I joke that they were married for the duration of their treatment and I'd give the <laughs> a little bouquet of flowers or something. <laughs> Or we would just do a little, like a graduation certificate when they actually completed their treatment plan. Or, you know, we would have like chili bake-offs on Friday and, you know, and tailgate things in the, uh, you know, with cooking hot dogs on, you know, one day of the month or something like that. So we did all kinds of little things that just um, made it fun and unexpected for them. And, and I, I never actually had a problem with people tr finishing their treatment plan. I actually had more difficulty getting them to actually discharge when the time was that they should discharge because they had quite often bonded so well with the other people that they didn't want to go. But also, I didn't want to give unnecessary treatment. So I would, you know, I'd always say, you're welcome to pop by and say hi anytime you want. But, you know, like, there's not much more that I can really do. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty fun. <laughs> I love I love being a, like I love being a physio because it can be the the most fun job in the whole world when you when you get it right like when you actually really engage with people yeah. you really care them and they really care about you and it it's a, it's a transformative experience it's such a different thing than mm -hmm. you know, some of the what some of the physios have described to me is not that so I guess my advice to physios is that regardless of your employer there are lots of little things that you can do in your own individual practice that can create a, a more engaging experience for both you and your, and your client. Mm -hmm. I think that's like such a cool concept that how you book patients with similar injuries mm -hmm. in a time slot that's near each other. I mean, for me, I, and I guess first Saroosh, cause yeah. you've gone through your kind of your ACL surgery, but I've had multiple shoulder injuries in the past. And just if someone, I knew someone that was going through a similar situation as I would, mm -hmm. that would, that would be so beneficial just to share each other's experience and like what we're going through and what things are working for us, what things aren't working for us and kind of how we're managing that. I feel like that's so important and that really drives engagement from a client's yeah. perspective. We're just, so we're just going to change gears here and talk about clinic culture from a manager's standpoint. How do you ensure that employees buy into the clinic culture and really engage with their company? Well, it's really interesting because one of the hardest things that I struggled with when I went from owning my own practice to going into a big corporate entity was this kind of inherent distrust that people have of big corporate entities. And it's funny because I grew up um, in the Yukon in a very small environment and with the family of kind of uh, the only way I could really describe them is that they were kind of hippie-ish <laughs> and they were very like, I, it, they were just absolutely shocked and stunned that I would join a big company. And, you know, um, it's like, I guess I think of it like in the seventies when they used to talk about the man <laughs> and, and it, um, you know, my dad looked at me, he's like, Oh my God, you turned into a capitalist. What's going on with you? Cause I think he was concerned that all those little touches of knowing all my staff and their, you know, their kids' names and unknowing their birthdays. And he said, you know, when you get into a bigger organization, it's going to be really hard to have that same level of connection. And that was the biggest challenge for me is that a lot of people associate um, bigger companies 
uh, with distrust. And so what I decided was that, um, that, that I wasn't going to hamper me. I, and, and I'm and sure it's a lot harder because you don't have as much individual face time with people. And if I could see every single person that is on my team, you know, and get to know them better, I absolutely would. But because of geography and time and all kinds of things, I don't have that luxury. So I try to find other ways of reaching out to them. So um, one of the things that I do is a little um, email that goes out every Tuesday called two minutes on Tuesday. And it's a little inspirational quote or a funny photo or a comment or um, something that I read in a book that was interesting and I'll pose questions out. So even though there's 600 people that might be 600 miles you know, away from me, I, I try to connect with them by just um, letting them get to know me a little bit and inviting them to also um, exchange. So I get all kinds of little emails back, like I love that quote, or this reminds me of the things that happened with my grandma, or thanks for being so transparent, this is also true for me. So we talk about everything. We talk about stress management, we talk about resiliency, we talk about dealing with difficult people, we joke, you know, we make jokes and, and add humor. And so I kind of open the gate for people to interact with me in whatever way feels comfortable to them, uh, at least remotely. Then wherever I can, I also try to sit in on staff meetings and clinics and just get to know the team that way. And then the other piece of it um, that I do is another little email that goes out on Friday called the Friday High Five, where I find things in the network that people are doing that are interesting or uh, things that they're doing where they've made a difference in the community or things that really align with uh, the values of our company and, and, and people who really um, exemplify those values. And I give them a high five and I make it you know, I say, here's a story about how Bob helped the Arthritis Society last weekend, or here's a story, or here's some comments from a patient. So I try to find ways of connecting people together with each other, and also connecting them with me, and also celebrating uh, accomplishments together. So that's one small thing. And then I just really try to be conscious of, because distrust is such a challenge, that of, of really what the elements of trust are, and exemplifying them wherever I can. So Trust is really simple. There's four pieces to it. One is, you know, saying what you're going to do. So communicating your commitment to do something. And so I try as much as possible to be transparent about here's the decision I'm making, here's why. Um, and then the, the next thing that's crucially important is then doing what you said you were going to do. Because <laughs> that really speaks to your character and your credibility. So, you know, if I say I'm going to do something, I try to always follow up and, and actually do that thing. Um, and, and, and be visible about that so that my audio and my video are aligned. Because uh, I think that's one of the most damaging things is when you say something, whether you're a leader or whether you're a clinician with a patient, saying that you're going to do something and then forgetting or not getting to it or not doing it. Um, so the audio and the video really, really have to match. The next piece of that, though, is then doing it well because you want to communicate um, through your actions that, you, you know, your competence level at doing something and then doing it repeatedly, which is really about consistency. So in the same way, I have the six E's of engagement. I have the four C's of trust when that's <laughs> communicating, um, you know, doing what you say, which is about your character and your credibility, your competence level and your consistency at it. So um, I think that's really the only way there's no, there's really no recipe or fast track or a certain way that you can game the system. You just have to be authentic and you have to do the best you can to be human with people and, and, and communicate well. And, and really the biggest piece of communicating well is listening well, <laughs> which, mm -hmm. you know, I think we definitely spoke to earlier. Yeah. And, you know, Tanya, it's very impressive that how, 
refine your soft skills are and you know you seem to be an expert in this area of engagement and um, you have a lot of knowledge around this and uh, we wanted to know how are some ways that you've developed your own soft skills to ensure the best possible engagement with individuals um there's a couple things one i'm a voracious reader so I absolutely love to just read and explore and be curious about social psychology and how it works. And then I just take what I learn in the social psychology realm and apply it in the physio realm. Um, there is some great resources, though. Motivational interviewing, for example, is a really great course to take. Um, if you ever come across a course on um, there's a couple different ones. There's one called Crucial Conversations for Leaders that I think they run all over the place. So and there's also a book. Um, called Crucial Conversations, uh, but really practicing your, uh, your listening and communicating and difficult conversation kinds of skills and, and, and also the motivational interviewing and just really understanding how language and the words we choose affect people. Um, so those kinds of courses are really, really helpful. And quite often they have them not in the physio realm, but in the communications realm. So if you go to your local college or university and look for online courses around communication, you'll often find a lot of these soft skill courses um, that are still applicable in the physio realm as well. And there are also some amazing people in the physio profession teaching on these topics, like the Compass Group. I know mm -hmm. Jim Millard yeah. is teaching yeah. and Jim Jazz. And yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and Dave Walton. Yes. Um, they're, well, like they, I taught a course with them a couple years ago and I just thought they were fantastic. So in the physio realm and outside of the physio realm, there's some good resources available. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually the, the compass group, they're having a, um, a course that's course. running in November and the PT boys and I, we really want to, we're interested in attending that event, but that unfortunately <laughs> that's on the same weekend as our national exam. So, um, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's on the 18th uh, that weekend. And I mean, if anyone's listening and they want to reach out to Jazz and Jim, it seems like an amazing workshop. And I would definitely recommend it. It's something that we're going to definitely do as soon as we get the national exam out of the way. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's funny. I want to bring them out to BC because I just think they're all wonderful. Not only are yeah. they wonderful teachers, but they're just wonderful people. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. If I bring them out here and we run another course, you guys are certainly all um, welcome to join as well. Yeah, we'll have to make a trip. Yeah. <laughs> see the beautiful mountains in Vancouver too. Yeah. So, so Tanya, we talked, uh, we kind of touched over client engagement as well as employee engagement, but we wanted to know what are your top three tips for clinicians to improve their engagement with their clients? And what are your top three tips for employers or clinic owners to improve engagement with their staff? Oh gosh, I have one that kind of spans both. And that is that to always remember that um, we judge ourselves often by our own intentions, uh, whereas other people judge us by our actions. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes uh, like I, I would say that where things most often break down in terms of relationship building is when um, you mean to do something, but you don't actually get around to it. You don't actually follow through with something that you say you're going to do, or you don't articulate really well at the front end, um, you know, what's important to you. So I, I would just say, bearing in mind, expectations is kind of the crucial piece, getting clear on, on, on what you're going to accomplish with your patient or, or as a manager with your employee and, and just going through those kind of six E's of, of um, engagement and, and just checking those boxes. I think the, the, the most dangerous thing that we do is not give feedback 
And mm-hmm, it's definitely. interesting. A lot of the social psychology um, research shows that in the absence of feedback, people will make up a story in their head. And the story that they make up is almost always based on their worst fears. So if you don't hear from your manager for a long time or if your physio is distracted and not talking to you, you start telling this story about maybe they don't care about me or maybe, you know, I'm not important or maybe, um, you know, they don't like me or maybe all these things. And so what happens in that empty space is, is, is an awful thing. So what I would say uh, for, for both groups actually is learn really well how to give feedback and learn really well how to accept feedback. And I would actually say that the accepting feedback and asking for it is actually more important than the giving it. Um, and, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that all of the good feedback givers in the world um, that are, are of no use to you if you don't accept that feedback, if you can't actually listen, if what you're, if what they're saying to you is triggering you and you're getting all emotionally jacked up over feedback and you, and you get defensive over feedback or you start to push back or say, that's not true. Or I don't like that. Then, then all of the good work that they did in trying to find ways to give you good feedback to help you grow and be better will be of no use to you. So I would say start with yourself, actually practice taking feedback, actually notice what kind of statements, you know, get you all triggered and, and really work on being gracious about accepting feedback and asking for it. And once you can do that really well, then practice giving it as well. And so I, I would say that you know, giving and receiving feedback is, is probably the most crucial thing. And part of that is just stimulating conversations about the things that you need or, um, you know, asking for the tools that you need or asking for clarity about expectations or asking for a bit more direction on what steps um, you, you might need to get there. So I think, you know, it's just being brave. It's really being brave and asking for what you need and then being willing to hear <laughs> after you've asked what the person is, is sharing back with you. And then I think the rest is just engaging some of the skills that we've already talked about. So understanding what, you know, uh, what trust looks like and what are the elements of trust and and being trustworthy. So almost all of these things are a two-way street. Like in order to, you know, um, be a good or to have good communication, you need to actually model good communication yourself. If you want to have good trust, you need to be able to be a trustworthy person and behave that way. So almost all of these things are um, residing in in your own self-management. So sometimes we get caught up in our relationships with other people and we think that they're doing something um, good or bad that's triggering us. And I think quite often we always have to go back to ourselves and say, okay, am I exhibiting the behavior that I want from that person? Am I being the change I want to see? Mm-hmm. And once you can take that personal responsibility for it, it's amazing what changes. Yeah, and you know, I was just going to mention that the feedback part is is a very important thing that we also believe in, especially as students going on placement, and basically, I would argue with that ninety percent of our improvement would come from the feedback that we get from our uh, CIs or uh, the the preceptors that we have, and it's it's very important that you say. Um, you know, not to be defensive or get emotional because, you know, I've had situations where for a second I felt defensive when someone gave me feedback, but then I obviously went back and thought, why am I getting defensive? There's no point. They're, they're trying to give me ideas on how to improve. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not perfect. Yeah. They're not perfect. No one's really perfect. So it's kind of 
something that you do need to wrap your mind around that, you know, receiving the feedback is important and it's just something that someone is uh, trying to let you know to help you improve most of the cases. Yeah. There are situations, obviously, where individuals might not be able to give feedback appropriately. Um, I think I think that there is a good way of also providing mm-hmm. feedback and a bad way of providing feedback. Usually, uh, from the physios that I've met, they've all been able to provide me great feedback appropriately, at least. But yeah, I definitely agree on that uh, that point that you made about feedback. Now we're getting a little uh, close to the end of the podcast episode. And you did mention the books earlier in another uh, question. But we wanted to ask you about the books that you mentioned, and maybe a quick point about why they were so influential for you uh, on business and, and your practice, and uh, especially in how it relates to this engagement topic. Absolutely. And I'd actually be happy to I know I talked about a lot of topics. I'd be happy to put a little one pager together that Mm -hmm. just talks about some of the basic things uh, that we went through today, Mm -hmm. along with some uh, recommended reading at the bottom. There are more books that I could probably discuss today, Mm -hmm. but um, two that I read really recently that I thought were great. One is called Radical Candor, and the other one is called Thanks for the Feedback. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, you know, it's funny. I usually have them on the bookshelf right beside me. I just looked over and <laughs> they're not there. So I will, <laughs> I will look up the authors of those two books and, uh, and, send, that, and send that out to you to, to get out to your podcast group because those yeah. are the two that most recently I read that really influenced me around the importance of really solid listening and also being able to give and receive feedback uh, really well. Right. Yeah, and we'll definitely put that resource out um, for our listeners on the website so that they can access this as well. Thank you so much for providing that. I'm sure everyone will appreciate uh, the one pager. We will definitely appreciate it from our end as well. Um, yeah, um, just to close down this episode, um, we'd like to, just for our viewers, for our listeners' sake, where can we find you on social media? Oh, gosh. You know what? I'm not on a lot of social media. I do have a Twitter account, which I very occasionally check. <laughs> um, I, I think probably the best thing I can do is give my uh, email address for now if anyone has any additional questions. And mm-hmm. then uh, as I develop, I actually am on LinkedIn as well. So mm-hmm. LinkedIn and Twitter, you can find Tanny Yardley on both. Um, so certainly feel free to reach out that way. Or if anyone does ever want to give me an email to delve deeper into any of these topics or ask about a book recommendation or pose a question, uh, it's tyardley at cbi.ca. Okay, perfect. And um, just for the listeners, uh, in case for the spelling for Tanya's LinkedIn, is T-A-N-J-A Yardley for her LinkedIn. Um, okay, thank you so yeah. much, Tanya, for coming on the episode. Really appreciate all the uh, valuable information that you provided today. And, you know, it's obviously very important that this engagement piece should be talked about more and more. And it's, it's definitely something that has been getting talked about more. And we're really happy to see that. And it does have a big impact on business and um, just overall success in your practice. So thanks again for taking the time. I know you're busy for coming out and uh, giving us this hour to speak with you. I really appreciate it too. And I apologize not being able to boil down to the quick three tips on anything, but I think so many of these topics are, are broad. And so as much as I'd love to give a recipe, I think we're, uh, 
we're, we're really, I'm really at the stage now where I'm exploring some of those broad themes and it's really exciting to have the opportunity to just talk about it. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate the energy and effort that you guys are putting into uh, creating a really great forum for people. Mm-hmm. And, and I look forward to um, enjoying many more podcasts to come. Thank you everyone for tuning in to the PTBC podcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode today. Please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at our website, ptbusinesscorner.com. Feel free to send us a message on social media or email us at info at ptbusinesscorner.com. See you next time.